Hi guys, thanks for listening to Loudmouth Theology. I'm Duncan, I'm the host of this podcast. Today we're going to be looking at the infancy narratives and the first two quests for the historical Jesus. If you enjoy the podcast, please give me a review, give me a star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. And try and engage with me on my social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at LMTPod. Just giving me feedback or if you want me to cover any shows or topics, please just let me know. I would love to hear from you. So today we'll start off with the Gospels. There's four canonical Gospels, two of which have infancy narratives. We're going to be looking at them, Matthew and Luke. They have some similarities. So they both include Mary and Joseph, have genealogies, although these genealogies are slightly different. They have Herod the Great in them. There's a miraculous conception by the Spirit of God. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So we said the genealogy are in both. Matthew's genealogy starts at Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. He links that to Jesus. He's from the line of Abraham. He's pure. Genealogies were important to Jewish tradition. In fact, genealogical records about Jewish people were kept by the Sanhedrin. Josephus, in his autobiography, actually has his own genealogy at the very start as well. So Matthew's drawing on this heritage, this tradition, and trying to show that Jesus is from the line of Abraham, but more importantly, Jesus is from the line of David. So you have this allusion to Jewish heroes already at the very beginning. Matthew's narrative is from a male perspective. His annunciation by the angels made to Joseph rather than Mary. And this is maybe because the first century Judea men were seen as more authoritative and women had no legal rights. So if you watch a story to sound more compelling, it would be told by a man of things happening to a man. It's centered around the town of Bethlehem. And this is David's city. This is where David's from. It also links to 2 Samuel 7.12, which is a prophecy which says that David's offspring would rise up, succeed him, and would establish his kingdom. So Jesus being born in Bethlehem alludes to this relationship to David, that he's another David coming again to reign and establish his kingdom. The interesting thing about Matthew's narrative in comparison to Luke's is that Joseph and Mary seem to be from Bethlehem. They seem to have always been there. We're never questioning that they came from Nazareth before. Bethlehem is also the expected Messiah's birthplace when you look at Old Testament prophecies such as Micah 5.2. Matthew also tries to allude Jesus to Moses in his text. With the political story about Herod and the Magi and the slaughter of the innocents, replicating Moses's birth where Pharaoh becomes Herod, Jesus is Moses and the slaughter of many innocents is compared to each other. The Magi that are mentioned as well emphasize Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 60 in which all the nations would come and worship the kings. We have these foreigners that are coming from far away to come and worship Jesus, to bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Isaiah 60 says that these foreigners will bring gold and frankincense. So Matthew's alluding to these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, showing that Jesus is this coming savior, this coming messianic king. He's alluding to all these Jewish ideas and it's believed Matthew's trying to reach an audience of Greek-speaking Jews. Luke's infancy narrative, on the other hand, is a lot longer than Matthew. In fact, it takes a detour through Mary's family, till it eventually gets to the birth of Jesus. So we hear about John the Baptist's birth. He relates Jesus and John the Baptist together and relates their mothers together as well. We have the Annunciation of the Angel to Mary, 
to putting Mary very much at the center point of this narrative. The narrative also starts in Nazareth, and then they have to move to Bethlehem. Historians are puzzled by this idea that they start in Nazareth and go to Bethlehem because the dates that Luke provides don't seem to add up. The governor doesn't seem to have been the governor at the time that Caesar Augustus was Caesar. So Luke may be hearing a second hand or be using incorrect dates or may have got confused a little in how he's trying to do the census. Also, it doesn't make sense that a census would ask people to move around when they're trying to count heads and get information. If you want to do a census successfully, you normally just tell people to stay at home rather than tell them to go back to the town of their ancestors, which they could just be guessing at. So it's interesting that Luke makes them go to Bethlehem. Again, scholars believe that this is to give them a link to David. This birth in Bethlehem links to all these Old Testament ideas. Luke doesn't have Magi in his book. But he does have shepherds. And this kind of shows the theological ideas of Luke compared to Matthew. Matthew's looking to a Jewish audience, whereas Luke's showing that Christ is the savior of all mankind. And yes, Matthew does have that idea, but it's more prominent in Luke's gospel. He links his genealogy all the way to Adam, the father of all mankind. And he looks at more lowly people. So Mary would have been a second class citizen, as we've already mentioned. Yet the angel comes to her. We have shepherds who would have been nobodies back then, and angels come to them to tell them about the Messiah. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus came for the outcast, he came for the other. And so Luke's infancy narrative has a certain theological twist and bent that Matthew's doesn't. Luke's also very much into his songs and hymns, which may be picking up an early Christian tradition. So he has Mary's Magnificat, he has Zechariah's Benedictus, and Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, which we still sing today in many different churches in the liturgy. So there are some contradictions there. Were they originally in Bethlehem? Were they not? Did the angel come to Mary or to Joseph? You can you can marry up the fact that the angel could go to both. However, where is the Magi mentioned in Luke? Why is there only shepherds? Why is Jesus born in a manger when it's not mentioned in Matthew's gospel that this is quite an important detail? And that's arguably because of the theological points that both authors are trying to make. And this is where we go into the search for the historical Jesus. So it's what can we truly know about the life of Jesus that hasn't been changed by the authors of the Gospels or by the church, as some scholars would believe. And so the historical Jesus is a search through the Gospels and through other texts to try and see the life of Jesus most accurately. The search for the historical Jesus is split into different periods, and these periods are referred to as quests, and we'll see later they're called quests because of Albert Schweitzer's 1906 book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. There are four quests, the old quest, the period of no quest, the new quest, and then the third quest. The quest for the historical Jesus is most often attributed to Hermann Romerus, and that's the star of the old quest. So Romerus from 1778 till Schweitzer in 1906 is largely considered the period of the old quest. These quests overlap slightly at different times, as do all historical periods, but largely this is where they think they go to. So the main points that I'm going to cover in the old quest are Hermann Ramirez, D.F. Strauss, The Liberal Lives of Jesus, Vreda's book The Messianic Secret, and Albert Schweitzer. So Hermann Ramirez was born in 1694 and died in 1768. He was a German philosopher and professor of Oriental languages. He's widely regarded as the instigator for the critical research of the historical Jesus. And although he was outwardly a professing Christian, his ideas and 
real views on Christian origins remained hidden throughout his lifetime. It wasn't until after his death when his work, The Apology, was broken into different fragments by G. Lesson and published posthumously as The Wolf and Buttle Fragments. Helen Bond points out that there are two particular treaties that are important for historical Jesus history. So these two articles are called On the Resurrection Narratives and On the Intention of Jesus and His Disciples. The first published in 1777 and the second in 1778. In these works, Ramirez argued that Jesus was a political claimant who wanted to be king, that the disciples stole the body, created the resurrection, and made Jesus a universal savior who would return in glory. And all this was done in another bid to take power. Jesus's first attempt was a failure, and his disciples tried a different way to do that. So, quoting Bond here, Christianity therefore was based on apostolic fraud rather than a divine revelation. The interesting thing about Ramirez is that few of his arguments were actually original. His main contribution, as Bond would say, was that he gathered all these ideas together into a complete account of Jesus' life, situating it firmly within a first century Jewish context and transforming a story of the supernatural and revelatory into one based on reason, natural origins, and ultimately deception. So the next important person in the old quest is D.F. Strauss. He lived from 1808 to 1874. He was a German liberal Protestant theologian and probably wrote the most important book of the old quest. I won't try and say it's German title, but in English it was translated as The Life of Jesus Critically Examined. Strauss developed a third way between the prevailing views of the time. So on one hand, you had rationalism, which saw all kind of miracles as misinterpretations. And then on the other hand, you had the supernaturalists who view the biblical accounts as entirely accurate. Strauss thought this was difficult. And so he thought, actually, there's a third way that we can look at the life of Jesus. And his third way was the introduction of the category of myth. He argued that the Gospels were not historical reports of the life of Jesus, but rather mythical accounts of Christian origins. They were composed by the evangelists largely on the basis of their Hebrew scriptures. For Strauss, the historical Jesus was so deeply buried under later Christian myth that it was impossible to reconstruct his life. This ended Strauss's career as he was attacked by both sides. However, this third way inspired a lot of scholarship, either trying to affirm what Strauss has said or to try and attack it. This led to really important research. So one of the main things that Strauss said was that John's gospel was never meant to be historical. And this asked questions not only about John's, but in particular the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark and Luke because they are so similar. This research came up with ideas about which gospel was first. Why are there so many similarities between those three gospels? This kind of research is known as the synoptic problem. One of the most important ideas that came out of this was the two-document hypothesis, where scholars believed that Matthew and Luke were using Mark as a basic text alongside another text. They eventually called this other text Q, because that is short for the German QL, and QL means source, and many of the scholars were German. Q and Mark provide the basis for both Matthew and Luke, and where Matthew and Luke agree but don't have linked to Mark, they're actually referring to this document that we no longer have called Q. Now, this is an interesting hypothesis. I think it's one of the most prevailing hypotheses for the synoptic problem. I prefer to think about the Farah theory as being more accurate. And one of the great proponents of this is Mark Goodacre from Duke Divinity School. And instead of using Q 
as it's made up kind of source, it's actually saying that Mark was the original, Matthew was second, and then Luke used both Matthew and Mark to compose his own gospel. That's just a little aside uh, to kind of give some brief idea about how the synoptic problem can be dealt with. Moving on to liberal lives, these hypotheses, especially the two-document hypothesis, show that Mark being seen as the earliest gospel made scholars think it was the most accurate. This then coincided with Romanticism, which was a movement that stressed emotion was the essential goodness of human beings. This created a genre known as the lives of Jesus. These lives were different interpretations of the gospel story. The lives allowed scholars to criticize or defend Christianity. Many of them positioned Jesus in the image of themselves rather than of a first century Jew. Now, Albert Schweitzer has a great quote where he says that the liberal lives allowed each individual to create Jesus in accordance with his own character. There's no historical task which so reveals a man's true self as the writing of a life of Jesus. So liberal lives started to wane due to three important events. The first was the publication of W. Vreda's The Messianic Secret in Mark's Gospel, which argued the secrecy motif was a theological construct by the author and did not go back to the life of Jesus. So what that means is Jesus never really refers to himself as the Messiah, never says outright, I am the Messiah that is to come. It always comes from other people. And so what Vreda is arguing is that this is a theological tool used by Mark to bring people into this gospel. And so this idea that Mark is the most historically accurate is incorrect and you can't base your lives of Jesus on Mark's account. The second was the reintroduction of eschatology, the view that Jesus was concerned with the last things. And this was defended most prominently by Albert Schweitzer in his 1906 book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Now we'll just quickly look at Schweitzer because he's a really important guy. He's really interesting. He's got loads of documentaries about him and movies. He was J.S. Bach scholar. He, he was amazing on the organ. Just really talented man. Then he was Obviously, an amazing New Testament scholar did loads of work in New Testament studies, taught at theological seminaries and universities. And then he decided to go and study medicine, become a doctor and move to Africa to go and help people out there. Just really, really interesting man. So I highly recommend looking him up. Mark Goodacre does an amazing podcast on him if you want to find out more. But Schweitzer's The Quest for Historical Jesus was groundbreaking in the way that it critiqued the liberal lives. Schweitzer argued that the Gospels were largely accurate in their depiction of Jesus. However, it was one of a misguided figure who was utterly wrong in his predictions. So Jesus thought he would bring about the end of the world through the Son of Man, which you can see in Daniel. However, the Son of Man never materialized. The Son of Man never appeared in Jesus' life. So then he realized that he would have to become the Son of Man in accordance with Isaiah 53, the passage on the suffering servant. Schweitzer believed that Jesus was a stranger and an enigma, a failed first century Jewish prophet with little to say to us or to himself in the early 20th century. Liberal Protestants had not missed the eschatological dimension for Schweitzer. They set it to one side. Schweitzer argued that this division was incoherent and called for consistent eschatology in which Jesus's apocalyptic outlook colored everything. The lives had modernized and domesticated Jesus. They made him a 20th century European, and they ignored the radical message and social critique in favor of a set of timeless moral truths. Jesus's enduring significance for Schweitzer was not found in the historical man from Nazareth, but in the spiritual Jesus that the church worshiped. It's the Christ of faith who holds contemporary meaning for Christians, not the historical Jesus.
And so this kind of ends the period of the old quest. The third and final thing that stops the liberal lives is World War One. The brutality and depravity of World War One shattered the optimistic outlook of the romanticism and the goodness of humanity. So this period of World War One, really into the 1950s, is known as the period of no quest because nothing's really happening. The world is at war for many of these years and it's seeing a new side of human depravity. The no quest name is a misnomer as there is work done, particularly by Rudolf Bultmann on the historical Jesus. So during this period, what I'm going to try and cover is Rudolf Bultmann. There are some interesting attempts to write accounts of Jesus' life, particularly those outside of German Protestantism. As you're probably aware, the majority of those doing the historical Jesus research in the old quest were liberal German Protestants. Whereas in no quest period, we are starting to see more people looking into the life of Jesus. Particularly interesting are the work of Jewish scholars such as Claude Montefiore, Joseph Klausner, and Robert Eisler. There's also interesting ideas flowing around at this time, such as Arthur Drew's idea that Jesus didn't exist. And unfortunately, during this time, there's also liberal lives that are shaped in the ideologies of the time. So most notably is the lives of Jesus that are shaped by Nazi propaganda and ideology, particularly the work of H.S. Chamberlain and Walter Grundmann. So we'll cover a bit of those guys, but mainly we'll be focusing on Rudolf Bultmann during this period. So Rudolf Bultmann, really interesting guy. If you do any introduction to Christian theology, you'll learn about Bultmann. He was part of the Confessing Church alongside Barr and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was against the German nationalism and the German church during World War II and the rise of Nazism. But he has an enduring legacy in the historical Jesus research. He lived from 1884 to 1976. The important point for Boltman in historical Jesus research was that faith could not be dependent on the shifting sands of historical inquiry. It was not the historical Jesus, but the charismatic Christ, the proclaimed Christ, in other words, the risen Lord of Christian proclamation who was all important. Bowman was one of the great pioneers of form criticism, which analyzed the formation of Gospels. Bultman argued that stories about Jesus circulated orally for some time, quickly assuming a number of clearly defined forms, such as sayings, miracles, conflict stories, legends, and others. And these have been worked over by the church and finally edited and placed within the Gospel framework by the evangelists. Some of these units of tradition may go back to the historical Jesus, but many have been made up by the church. So he's drawing upon Schweitzer and he's also drawing upon Strauss's ideas. He's got a very famous term called demythologization, where you take out all the miracle stories of Jesus and you are left with the basic facts as more of a real representation of who Jesus was. Form criticism tried to reflect the particular situation, life situation of early Christian communities rather than historical accounts of the life of Jesus. This life situation that they tried to reflect it's called Sitzen Lieben. So what Boltman was saying was that the so what Boltman was saying was that the proclaimer, the historical Jesus, became the proclaimed, the risen Lord. And that is the proclaimed Jesus, shaped by the theological geniuses such as Paul and John, and demythologized, that is with their outdated worldview stripped away, who is the proper focus of Christian faith. Rudolf Boltman is probably the most important figure of this time period. And he influenced many people theologically, but also in historical Jesus research, as we'll see in the next two periods. There were also some ideas out there by scholars who took Boltman's work to the extreme and even stated that Jesus had never existed. So Arthur Drews is one of them. He wrote that everything about Christianity has a mythical character and is therefore not necessary to presuppose that historical Jesus had ever existed. He wrote this in 1909, The Christ Myth. Here's a quote from that book. The Christ faith arose quite independently of any historical personality known to us. 
Jesus was in this sense a product of the religious social soul and was made by Paul. Now, the majority of scholars would completely disagree. And we get seen as well in this period how the liberal lives could be manipulated and used in any way they want. The Nazi lives of Jesus tried to reconstruct the historical Jesus into an individual that espoused modern ideologies. A historical Jesus which fit into Nazi anti-Semitic ideology became the work of many German scholars in the historical Jesus subject. I think all scholars would now say that the scholarship was highly dubious and incorrect, but it was popular during the period between the wars, particularly with the rise of Nazism. H.S. Chamberlain argued that Jesus belonged to a mixed ethnic group brought into Galilee after the Assyrian deportation and was possibly of Aryan stock. This work was so popular that by 1944, it was in its 29th German impression. Walter Grundmann, another scholar, argued that while Jesus' family belonged to the Jewish confession, they were not ethnically Jewish, and Jesus himself strongly opposed the Judaism of his day. And this is why the liberal lives are so dangerous, and this is why we need to look at the text and try and search for historical Jesus within his own time frame, what we know of that time frame, rather than try and make Jesus into the modern man that we have today. We can still see that in the way we project our art of Jesus. He's often depicted as a white European male, yet he was from first century Palestine. The way we frame and see Jesus affects our theology and can affect the way that we engage with problematic ideologies. And this is one of the key reasons that the quest for the historical Jesus is important. So in parting, we will look at two other quests in the next podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I found it very interesting. The people involved in historical Jesus research are particularly interesting people. I hope you go and look them up after this podcast and just find out more. There's so much intrigue into all these scholars' different lives, never mind just the life of the historical Jesus. But it's just important to know how this search, this scholarship affects our theology. And we'll be looking in, into that more in our podcast later on. So to conclude, please leave a review if you thought this was good, if you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or topics you would like me to go into, just let me know. You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at LMTPod. And let me know what, what topics you'd like me to cover as well. I'm going to be looking at an introduction to Christian theology to get the basics particularly for me just to get back to basics and know what I'm doing. But I hope to educate some people and take them along with me as I go through it. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about the historical Jesus. If you want to find out more, please listen to my next podcast. Thanks.